Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We pray, Lord, you speak to our hearts now as we look to your word. And Father, we thank you for just uh, your grace over our life. And Father, just, Father, how you're so um, seeking man all the time. And so we pray for anyone here, Lord, or over the internet that doesn't know you. We pray that you would speak to their hearts as your word goes forth. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 15, in verse 11 to 32, we have um, what's usually called the parable of the prodigal. The message is entitled, A Saved Sinner by Grace. Usually, this text is unanimously taught that it's a Christian who has gone back into the world, and because we're eternally saved, he'll always come back. It's completely foreign to the text, as we'll see tonight. It's taking Calvinism and forcing it into a text of eternal security. There were two sons that were lost here, both inside the house. One left, as we're going to see, gets saved and comes back, while the other one remained in the house, lost forever. That's what it teaches. There's three parables. No, at verse 1 through 7, you have the lost sheep. In verse 8 through 10, you have the lost coin. And this is the third and final one. By the way, when he says a parable, it's single. So it's a three, a triplet, but this is the climax. Demonstrating the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So right up front, this young man was never saved. He was lost as well as his other brothers will see. Let me read here for us and then we'll move through the text. It says, then he said a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of my goods that fall to me. So he divided them um, to, his, uh, uh, to them of his livelihood. And not many days after, the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all there arose of severe famine in the land, and he began to be in one. And then he went and he joined himself to the citizens of that com- country. And he sent, uh, sent himself into his field to feed swine. And he would uh, gladly have filled his stomach with the pods of the uh, swine aid. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will rise up and go to my father's house. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to the father. But when he was still a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And... I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came in, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he was received, uh, your father has received him safe and, and, and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was hungry, angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments of any kind. And yet you never gave me a young goat, and that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this your son came, who has devoured his livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted cow for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here in verse 11 through 16, you have the son who chose to live for sin. God doesn't force anybody to go to heaven, nor does he predestine anybody to go to hell. As I've said often, listen, God has voted for you to go to heaven, and Satan has voted for you to go to hell. You have the deciding vote where you go. No one can ever blame God. Notice the request in verse 11 and 12. It's from the son for his inheritance. And he had the right to ask for it. He wasn't asking anything unreasonable. He could ask it before his father died or wait till his father did so. And it would be divided between the two sons. The older would get a double portion according to Deuteronomy. But he was all within his rights. And um, the livelihood uh, speaks of what it took for daily living. So in other words, this was money that was needed for his father to live on and to keep maintaining his, his uh, home and everything else. The willful squandering of his inheritance um, was of his own doing, his own choosing. Believing that he was making the right decisions. He was living out his life according to the priorities of his life. Either because he had been influenced by those outside of his father's house. Or whatever other means. We're not told. But this was a decision of his own. And he plans to leave the home. And this seems to be the motive for asking of his inheritance. He needs this money to get set up. And he moves to a far country, far away from home, far away from his father, so no one can see what he does. And he doesn't have to be accountable to anybody. This is one of the, um, the snares of the enemy. To think because men don't see us, God doesn't see us. It makes no difference what men see. Whether it be our father, our mother, or friends, or anybody else. But he had this spiritual blind sight. Remember, he's spiritually dead. He's not born again. The younger son um, gave himself over to a life of sin. In verse 13 at the end there in 14. He spent all of his inheritance. So he's got money. He's got friends, right? And um, he's living a permissive lifestyle, doing what he wants. No one telling him what not to do. Nobody's correcting him, confronting him. He, he seems to be free. He, he feels great. But as all this fun is going on, the money is going out. 
You see, when you have um, money and you can provide things for partying or anything you do, you've got all kinds of friends. The test is when all those things are gone, who your friends really are. And this is a good picture of the world's philosophy, the world's perspective. It says that he did so prodigal living. The word there, prodigal, simply means permissive, riotous living. He is uh, throwing everything away that the father had worked so hard for and so long for. Interesting about money that we receive, if we haven't worked for it, we won't value it how we spend it. Somebody's money is always easier to spend than your own. If you have to work hard for your money, then you think twice the way you spend it. But there's always the foolishness in us as sinners that even if we work hard, sometimes we don't care and we throw it away. But it sure helps if you do work for it. Now, he found himself in a difficult situation in verse 14 because now all of a sudden the money's gone and so are the friends. And he was in the midst of a severe famine to make things worse. And he began to be in want, meaning he, he didn't have anything or, or know how to care for himself. He had no means by which he could, the daily things of just food or clothing or anything like that. Now, I don't think any of us have ever been in that situation. In America, the poorest person is probably wealthier than most people in third world countries. And that the greatest state that he came to is the result of his own doing. In other words, he wouldn't be able to blame those friends that took advantage of him. He certainly couldn't have blamed the father or anybody else, but he brought this on himself. And so often this is exactly what people do as sinners. When I was in the world and others who were saved when I came along in the early 70s, you know, the world always wants to blame somebody else for uh, their calamities. Our whole society is built around that. You know, we're um, enablers, codependent, and we're dysfunctional. We pick up all these nifty little terms of psychobabble that pass the blame on somebody else when God really wants to nail you for your own sin, for your own calamities. That you are responsible for the things you bring upon yourself. That's, that's the start of acknowledging your lostness. He became desperate in need. So he joins himself with these Gentiles in the country there, cleaving to them desperately. Now he's a Jewish boy. You know what the Jews thought of the Gentiles? They were, God created them to kindle the fires of hell. But he's destitute, no food, no shelter. What else is he going to do? So he was hired to care for pigs, of all things. You know how Jews feel about ham and pig and everything, right? It's unclean. And yet he became desperate enough that he was coveting this pig food, pods. It's livestock food. It, um, it's terrible stuff that a man would even want to eat this stuff. But when you're hungry enough, anything looks good, right? 
but he was given nothing. So he's gone from the father's house that he's had everything. He's requested what is lawful. He hasn't been denied. It's given to him. He goes away and he just wastes it all away. And now his reality of the world and party life and being independent all of a sudden starts hitting him. You see, every person who's born into this world is like the moon. On one side, all looks well. But on the other side, it's dark. We are sinners. We are enemies of God. We are rebels. And our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says. But we put the best face first, always, as people. And we can justify, we can explain away, we can point fingers. While all along God is trying to have me acknowledge my own sinfulness, my own depravity, my own need of agreeing with God. So the son who chose to live in sin left the father's house. It looks so grand, but his dream has turned into a nightmare. What a, what a common picture so often of those in the world, especially today in many different ways. But notice, secondly, from 17 to 24, you have the son who repented from sin. The lost son in verse 17 reflected on his uh, degrading sinful condition. He came to see the error of his way. His self-imposed consequences. He considered here in contrast to the present condition with the pigs. He's examining, he's thinking through. The comparison was about the food in his father's house, the servants, how much they had. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and to spare? And here I perish with hunger. All of a sudden, the reality of of, of his own downfall hits him. He came to a decision to change his direction. That's what the word repentance means, to change your mind, to turn around. First, he acknowledged his sin against God. In 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. So first of all, our acknowledgement that our sin first is against God. The vertical. Yes, we sin with people and against people, but primary that sin is first against God. Vertical. Then on the horizontal, as we'll see. So first, all my sin. David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And kill Uriah, he says, against you and only you have I sinned, Lord. Psalm 51. Second, again, is against the Father. Before you. The horizontal. He realized the fleeting pleasure of sin. The destructiveness of it. He came to a place of humbling himself. Look at 19. He acknowledged he had dishonored the Father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's talking to himself. He hasn't done this yet. He's, he's, he's going through this. 
He would ask for a job. Make me like one of your hired servants. Just simply an employee. You don't even have to consider yourself my father. Because I've shamed you and dishonored you. In 20 through 21, the lost man turned to go. And now to play this out. To confess to his father his sin. Notice in 20, his sincere and genuine repentance is evident by his actions, not remorse. A lot of times people cry and they, well, I'll never do this again. But then as soon as everything's okay, they go right back to it. That's, that brings forth death. It just brings tears. It brings no change of life. He went to speak face to face with his father. It says he arose and he came to his father literally having risen as he's on the way. He was greeted with unexpected loving kindness. He didn't expect this kind of reception. The word but marks the sharp contrast that the father did not wait till the son reached him. The father's been looking. The father was moved with tender loving compassion for his son, yet being still a way off. His father saw his son and he had compassion. The father affirmed his love. He ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him repeatedly. This is the word, the same word that is used for Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. And when the elders fell on Paul's neck at Miletus. Notice his sincere and genuine repentance is confirmed by his words in verse 21. He acknowledged and confessed his sin against God first. So what he was mauling over, he has been true to exactly to the point. And his son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven. The vertical first. He confessed his sin against his father. The horizontal comes next. And in your sight, both are necessary. But the primary one is the vertical one. And then notice he confessed that he had dishonored his father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He had shamed his name. All these things are necessary. To confess means to say the same thing. God says, you're a sinner. And the guy said, well, no, really, I'm not. I just, I just don't, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. No, 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 you're a sinner. So the Bible calls me to agree with God, not to debate him, not to argue with him. But I must agree with God. Notice in 22 to 24, the lost son was forgiven and welcomed back. By his father, due to his confession, which indicated true, genuine repentance. The father confirmed his restored status as a son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a new ring upon him. He gave him the vested authority. The father confirms his freedom. Sandals on his feet. 
Slaves didn't have shoes or sandals. He was honoring his son. The father conferred a celebration over his repentance and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let's eat and be merry. He did not expect this. Maybe you have been wayward all your life. Or maybe you were raised in church in a Christian home. And the only reason you went to church is because your parents forced you to go or took you. And you've been out there in the world. This is your story. This is your blueprint to get right with God. To agree with God. He will not reject you. The animal was carefully fed and this was a special occasion calf for such an occasion as this. A time of eating, a time of celebrating joyously. In 24, notice the father stated the significance of this occasion, restoration and celebration. He had returned from his sins. I'm sorry, he had turned from his sins and now had returned home. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. The father did not mourn or regret that his son had returned home. He looked upon it as a blessing because he saw the change of his life. Now, if he would have returned without a change and demanding that his father take care of him and still accept him and never acknowledge his sin, that would be a greater insult. That would be adding insult to injury. He had turned to God to be saved. He says he was lost and is found, marking true, genuine repentance, therefore the forgiveness. So a clear indication that the prodigal is not a Christian who's gone back into the world and he is the epitome of illustration of eternal security. No, it isn't. That's a figment of preachers' and teachers' imagination. That's not what it's teaching at all. Both of the sons were lost. One has repented and he's saved. We're going to see the other one remain lost inside the father's house. Never left the father's house. Good boy. Obedient. Hard worker. But unrepentant. There's the key. You guys remember Simon the Pharisee who said uh, when that woman came in to wash the feet of Jesus, he says if this man would know what manner of woman she was, he would not allow her to touch him. Who is Jesus speaking this parable to, these three parables? You look at the beginning of the chapters to the Pharisees who were getting down on Jesus because he was preaching and saving sinners. You see, this is a parable against the Pharisees. They're the rulers of Israel. They're lost. They don't agree with God that they're bad guys. 
They think they're the good guys. But when you drop the plumb line, you drop God's word, you find out whether you're saved or you're not. Whether you're found or lost. It's all according to God's word. He and his son expressed joy and they began to be merry there in verse 24. What a joyous time. So the son who repented from sin returned to his father's house. To enjoy that relationship now. That he never had before. Notice thirdly we have the son who chose to remain lost in sin. It's a choice people make ladies and gentlemen. No one, no one gets to hell by accident. No one goes to heaven automatically. Notice in 25 down to 28, the response of the older brother is given to us. He was unaware of, uh, of the return of his brother there in verse 25. And so he's returning back from working the fields. Um, he's startled by the feast. He's hearing the music and the dancing and everything else. And so he inquires in verse 26 to the servant uh, as he calls one of the servants and asks him, uh, what, what's the meaning? What's the account of these things? So he was told in 27 that his father was celebrating the return of this younger brother. His father had welcomed him back. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received them safe and sound. Now as these words are going out, these things are not going well with the older brother. There's a hard heart. There's a, a, a hatred here. Here this older brother represents the Pharisees. The younger brother represents the lost sheep, the lost coin. The joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. And so his father prepares the special calf. He's told. He's getting madder and madder. He was furious. He wanted no part of it. He was angry. He wouldn't go in. Verse 28 tells us. Then the resentful attitude of the older brother is given to us at the end of 28 down to 30. Notice in 28 at the end, his father came out to entreat his, his son. He pleading with him. He had heard the older brother's outburst of anger. So the father comes out in meekness, pleading, urging him to rejoice over his younger brother. But he would have nothing to do with it. Notice the contrast between the father's loving compassion, the celebration of the son being alive now, in contrast to the son who really kind of saw his brother as an offense before him and as really um, something that, that was beneath him. And that's the whole attitude of the, of the Pharisees, that self-righteousness. He's a perfect parallel to it. And so in 29, he expresses arrogant displeasure about his father's decision. So now, because of his 
the evil in his heart, he's not only, I mean, just getting down on his younger brother was repented, but now he turns that animosity towards his father, who has given him everything. He reminded his father about his loyalty as a hired servant, a loving son. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. And I'm sure he said in a very demeaning tone. Maybe in gritting his teeth to demonstrate his disfavor. He expressed his disappointment with both his brother and his father in 30. His bitterness for his brother was spewing. Not claiming him as his brother. Listen, but as soon as this son of yours came. Whoa. Not my brother. This son of yours. This guy has it bad. You see, this is the heart of man. We compare ourselves among ourselves so we become unwise. And so we learn to say, well, I'm not bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. You know, I haven't done this, but she's done that and he's done that. And, and people put themselves in the same position as the Pharisees and as his older brother. Thinking that somehow they deserve salvation. Somehow they deserve to be awarded. Being completely wrong. He chided his father for not celebrating him, but rewarding a sinful son. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You see, it's that comparison. In 30, he expressed his disappointment with, again, both his father and his brother. Resentful. His disagreement with the father in restoring him and celebrating him is very, very clear. You killed the fatted calf for him. He wants no part of it. And so the, the wrongness of the older brother's attitude and his words are very, very evident. Look at 31 and 32. In 31, his father reproved his older son. The father draws the line. He, here is the compassion of the father for the other lost son. Because he sees clearly that what he's concluding, the things he's saying are so wrong. He pointed out his blessed state always being with the father. The word son is technon and affectionate endearing term. He pointed out that his position of inheritance had not changed. And all that I have is yours. The, 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 the inheritance has already been shared. He wasted his. You've got yours. It doesn't affect you. So why are you so bitter? His father rebuked his older son in 32. Their contagious joy was absolutely justified. 
Listen to his words. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. Absolutely just. The Pharisees getting mad at Jesus for eating with the sinners, right? Tax collectors and sinners. The older brother was self-righteous, considering himself better than the younger brother. But he was lost while in the father's house. Notice in 32, he pointed out the most important thing about his brother. For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Your brother used to be like you while in my house. Lost. Now he's found. Now he's alive. The clear proclamation here that this third parable doesn't teach that he was saved and is an illustration of eternal security. But it only confirms the first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the joy in heaven over one sinner. It's real simple. And so, this is the picture of every sinner. You have people who are caught up in the world on whatever level you want to put it. You have others who are moral, ethical, but they're both lost. Because no one can merit salvation. Nobody's perfect. Therefore, every sinner falls short of the glory of God. You cannot use anything in your life. You cannot point to anything that you have kept, whether it be ethical or moral, that would deserve an audience before God and to let you into heaven. You must come confessing your sin, that you are a lost sinner. And if you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away your sin and died in your place, then you have the high privilege of calling upon Him and repenting by your own words, forgive me for my sin. Give me a brand new heart. Make me your son or your daughter, and He will do that. Even this year, the Father represents the love of God the Father and the Son. For every lost sinner. And so I don't know where you are tonight. But you stand in one of two camps. Either you will remain lost in the father's house. If you are from a Christian family. Or you go to church and you haven't repented. Or you will be like the first son. Who, who acknowledges their sin, who, who sees it clearly and sees the grace of God the Father through Jesus Christ and genuinely repents and asks forgiveness and will be forgiven, restored, and made a child of God. By grace through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so the Son who chose to remain lost in sin was always lost in the Father's house. You get to choose which brother you want to be. The one who repented or the one who thought he was good enough. The choice is yours. But every choice has a consequence. Every person in hell tonight know without a doubt that they condemn themselves to hell by not agreeing with God and repenting. Every person in heaven tonight knows that they're there by the righteous grace of Jesus Christ because they repented. The choice is one or the other. God doesn't force you, but he pleads with you by his spirit that you might turn from your sin and call on his name. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. And Lord, we pray tonight for anybody here, Lord, and those over the internet that you would just minister to them. And Lord, um, of their need of you, Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is the only one that can bring this to light and the only one that convicts us of our sin. And so, Lord, we just pray that even right now you would speak to each individual here, Lord, who doesn't know you, and that you would just um, um, bring them to yourself, Lord, as they would yield their life to you and call upon your name. As you're praying, if you um, don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to acknowledge your sin before God, and to call on his name, that he would cast your sins as far as east as the west, bury them in the deepest ocean, and make you a son or a daughter of God by grace of faith. If this is your desire, it's by the grace of God. It's called repentance, as we saw through the teaching. It is your calling upon God, agreeing with God. So this is a simple prayer of repentance. There's no formula prayer. There's no special prayer. This is just a simple prayer of repentance. And if you want to be born again and forgiven for your sin, then you pray this prayer to the Lord. And he knows if your heart is genuine. And if your heart is genuine... He will forgive you. He will give you a brand new heart, His Holy Spirit, and make you His child. This is your prayer to Him. You can repeat it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. And baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.